Before we get into this lesson, I just want to walk through this really briefly. This week is an introduction, I think an important starting point. But then next week, we're going to talk about uh, the, what, what guides our worship. And we'll talk about the role of the Bible, the role of writings of Christians who have gone before us. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about kind of what is authoritative for our practice of worship. Um, and then the following week, we'll talk about the Trinity. We're Trinitarians. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sometimes our worship doesn't communicate that. We sometimes come across as if we worship a bi-unity, you know, just God the Father and Christ the Son. So I want to talk about Trinitarian worship and help us to become a Trinitarian church. And then the next two weeks, we'll talk about worshiping God as humans. So in the first one, the subtitle there is a kingdom of priests, the family of God. So I want to emphasize why it's not just pastors who worship, but every Christian worships. And then also in that part one, the role of children and men and women in worship. And um, if, if we don't believe that our five-year-olds are regenerate, can they sing in a children's choir? You know, some of these sort of questions that I think are, are real questions, you know, um, we'll get into that that week. Then week five, uh, worshiping God as human. So this is more of a physiological look at who are we as humans? How, how do routines, rituals, the body, stories factor into the way that we worship? Um, how do we learn? How do we know anything at all? Can we know something? And then can we say something to God and about God? And then week six, worship is a gathered assembly, a theater for the gospel. You know, the distinction between all of life worship and gathered corporate worship and uh, the part that each of us play in the script we use and the drama that we um, display. Week seven, I have a title that needs a lot of explanation that will happen on week seven, Lord willing. Sacramental worship, God's role in word, that's the Bible, water, that's baptism, and wine, that's the Lord's Supper. I just like all the W's coming together there. Um, but I, I think that there's a lot to talk about there generally. And then we'll get into the specifics in week eight, a theology of baptism. Week nine, I, and I've tried to be really clever with these titles, okay? So I hope you appreciate that. <laughs> Eating with Our Fathers, A Historical Theology of the Lord's Supper. And then week 10, Nourished by Bread and Wine, A Biblical Theology of the Lord's Supper. And then week 11, I want to talk about creedal worship, speaking the words of the saints. So how, why is it that we can sing songs that have been written by flawed humans in our worship gatherings? Why is it that we can recite creeds and statement of faiths and catechisms? Um, and, and what role does that have in our gathered worship? And then week 12, back to the future, worshiping shaped by the now, the already, and the not yet. And that's going to be kind of the climactic end of our class. So that's, that's the preview of where we're going um, very thankful for Josh taking the last Bible class and preaching, doing both at the same time. That gave some time to put this together. Um, so 
I'll pray here. Um, but it's, you know, I know some of you are in transition with churches and other things. And as you look at that schedule, you know, maybe there will be some that is your kind of working in between that is piquing your interest or, or maybe would be extra helpful. Hopefully that schedule helps that, that way. All right, let, let me pray and then we'll begin here. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity that we have to worship you and for the work that your son has done to redeem us and for the sealing of your spirit and the work of your spirit to communicate our prayers to, to you and to change us. And we are hopeful that we will deepen in our theology of worship during these times. We ask that you'd allow us to be able to think clearly and spiritually and wisely, and that as we seek to continue to deepen the shape of our worship on Sunday mornings, that it would be received by you as an act of praise and a sacrifice of the heart. In Jesus' name, amen. One final note before we jump in. I've given you a packet of today's lessons, and, and the reason that I've done that, it may not be helpful for you to follow along, you know, line by line, but because this is really important stuff, I wanted to make sure that I kind of worded it in a particular way and would give you something throughout the week if you had questions that you couldn't get to in the Bible class, that you can look at those the way it's phrased and we can talk and, and kind of chase some of those things down. And then additionally, I obviously am leaning on people other than myself. I'm not making up this theology of worship. And so there are footnotes there with resources that I've used that I think might be particularly helpful to you. And then there are some content footnotes that go elaborate a little bit more. So I don't know that we'll get into everything here, but I at least wanted to have things clearly articulated. Um, so if it's helpful for you to follow along in these notes, go for it. Um, but if it's not helpful, don't. I have a bare bones PowerPoint maybe that'll at least keep your mind in the right category of where we are. All right, any, any comments or questions there before we start? That's kind of the preliminary logistics. Okay, well today we're beginning our, our class and I've titled it Worship Evangelical and Embodied. And um, that might be a little bit confusing, and that's okay, because that's what we're going to look at this morning. One of the challenges with starting a class on a theology of worship is knowing where to start. Um, because when we're talking about worship, as I was talking with a pastor from somewhere else about this, this class this week, he just said the toughest thing about teaching on worship is that you're teaching on everything. So it's hard to consolidate it all, and it's hard to know where to start. So we could, for you know, example, begin by developing a definition of the term worship and how this word has developed over the course of history, you know, tracing it back to worship and these sorts of ideas. Or perhaps we could start with identifying the authoritative source for what should be included in our corporate worship gatherings, talking about things like the regulative or the normative principle or something like that. Um, or we could just more simply grab our Bibles and do a search for the word worship and just look at every text where the word worship shows up. Well, I think each of those may have its merits, but I, I think instead 
our entry point into worship is not church history, it's not a dictionary, and as heretical as this might sound, it's not even the Bible. It's not taking those individual appearances of the word worship and finding our starting point there. Instead, our entry point to worship is the same entry point that we had with, to our relationship to the Father, and that is the gospel. So our entry point into Christianity is the gospel, and I think that our entry point into worship is the gospel as well, the declaration and reception of the evangel, okay? That's the, the word euangelion for, you know, our Greek friends out there, euangelion, evangel, gospel, and maybe even from hearing that, you're getting that word evangelical that's going to be descriptive of our worship. So I think that what we need to do then is start by um, defining what an evangelical is. And you'll note that I'm saying evangelical rather than evangelical. Um, That's because I'm a little pretentious sometimes. And I like evangelical better because the news media doesn't pronounce it that way. Um, Our friends in Britain do. So um, I think that's helpful. And you can pronounce it however you'd like, but in our church covenant, the word evangelical shows up. And when I read it, I read it loud, evangelical. So I think that's a better way for us to be pronouncing it. Uh, but it's, that's not a first level issue, okay? Um, but so we'll, we'll define what an evangelical is. And if the evangelicals believe the gospel, we need to ask, what is the gospel? And then we have to talk about this second qualifier, embodied. Why is that important? What does it mean to be embodied? So that's where we're headed this morning. If I can talk fast enough, we'll get through it this morning. Otherwise, we'll just plan to pick up on it next week, okay? All right, so let's begin by asking that question, what is an evangelical? It's not just someone who drinks coffee. Okay, I just need that as we, as we go. The term evangelical has entered into disrepute as of late. So right now, if someone's labeled as an evangelical, that's a pejorative way of talking about somebody. So um, both within Christianity and without, you know, externally, this label of evangelical has sort of become identified as the equivalent to a Republican wearing a MAGA hat and showing up at a Trump rally. Well, it's unfortunate that the news media has sort of done that, and there are maybe reasons to do that, but I, I just want to redefine it in a more accurate way and less as a cultural, politicized way. Of course, some have set aside this term evangelical altogether. You know, I, if, if you are on the social medias at all, you'll see it on Twitter, it, individuals declaring, I'm no longer an evangelical. And they're not actually saying they've departed from that theology. They're just trying to separate themselves from that term. Similar to the way that when I was in college, a, a fundamentalist college, one of my friends came in one day to chapel and said, guys, I am no longer a fundamentalist. And we, you know, of course, like, dude, by virtue of the fact that you're enrolled at Maranatha Baptist Bible College, you're a fundamentalist. You just can't get around it. But there, there's a distancing from terms as they kind of take on cultural baggage. And that's happened now with this term evangelical as well. 
I, though, think that this term is still worth identifying with because of the biblical language that it's grounded on. And um, so I'm going to continue to use that term and defend it. Uh, but the question remains, what is an evangelical? Well, this, what an evangelical is can't be separated from evangelicalism, the movement of which evangelicals are a part. And on page three there, I've given you a definition. Evangelicalism is a historical and global phenomenon that seeks to achieve renewal in Christian churches by bringing the church into conformity to the gospel and by making the promotion of the gospel the chief mission of the church. So to talk about being an evangelical church is to say that we're a church that cares about the gospel, that wants to make the gospel centered and wants to busy ourselves with declaring the gospel and doing gospel work is part of our worship and part of our life as a church. So we could say then that as an evangelical church, we're a gospel-centered church, a gospel-driven church, a gospel-anything church, and that's pretty much right. We care a lot about the gospel. Um, and, and that's what I want to maintain, even in our corporate worship. Our worship is about the gospel. And in coming weeks, we'll see that our corporate worship is shaped by the arc of the gospel and the redemptive work of God throughout history. Um, but I, I just want to say we're an evangelical church at Resurrection Church. That's the reality. That means that we care about the gospel. Our defining parameters of who is a Christian are those who have received the gospel, okay? Um, we don't look at people and say, you must check all of these 10 boxes to be a gospel believer, okay? And in, in, in one way, we're, we're essentially drawing a line of who's in and who's out, but we also recognize that we're not just an evangelical church. We're a church in the Baptist tradition, so we have a, another line for membership, okay? But as we look at other churches in our area, in our community, we want to say there are gospel-preaching churches, evangelical churches that are not going to look exactly like us, and that's okay. And even within the Baptist circle, um, I, as I start to draw the contours of our worship practices, we're going to be different than some other Baptist churches. And that too is okay, um, I think. And I'll try to make that case when I talk about what guides our worship. And I think there's some elasticity to what's included or not included in our worship practices. And it becomes a matter of prudence and discernment. But what is of first importance is the gospel. So then, what are the features of evangelicalism? I've listed four bullet points that are generally accepted as the features of evangelicalism. The first one is conversionism, the belief that people need to be converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And we believe that. Um, it becomes a little bit complicated as we track American history is there's the first kind of great awakening where you kind of have this pervasive non-Christian way of being and individuals are just overtly converted as they accept the faith and there's a kind of conversion that is very noticeable is you have drunkards becoming not drunkards and thieves becoming not thieves and these sorts of things. The challenge is 
evangelicalism has become established is talking about children and what conversion looks like and, and means to children. We'll maybe get into that down the road. But, but we need to say that still that conversion is something we care about, which is why we declare the gospel and call people to faith and repentance. Activism is another bullet point, and that's the belief that the gospel needs to be proclaimed to others and expressed in a commitment to service. So we say that we don't care just about mental assent to the gospel, but receiving the gospel in turning to Christ as Savior and Lord. We'll talk about that a little bit more down the road, but we believe that this message needs to be proclaimed. And then I think activism can be stretched a bit beyond that as well to talk about the way that the gospel changes us and our way of being in the world such that we do things in our community that aren't necessarily declaring the gospel, but living out the gospel. And so we have a category for things like a food pantry being an evangelical mystery, or not a mystery, maybe it is a mystery, but ministry is, is we become gospel-shaped people who do gospel-like things in the world. The next bullet is biblicism, and that means we have a particular regard for the Bible as inspired and authoritative. And next week, I want to distinguish between a naive biblicism and genuine biblicism. So there's a naive biblicism that just looks for a quote, in quote, plain reading of the text, which is really just read a response. You know, this is what the Bible means to me. And as much as fundamentalists and evangelicals want to say, we reject postmodern ways of reading, that's exactly what happens in just about every church I've been in, at least on a popular, popular level. This is what the Bible means to me. So that's, that's what's true for me. And then some take it beyond that and say, well, what I've gathered just simply from my quotation of this verse is what, what this verse means. Well, we have to expand beyond that to recognize the Bible as a text that's historical and literary and theological in nature. Um, so I usually don't say I'm a biblicist. You know, people who call themselves biblicists generally are saying, this is how I'm reading the Bible and everyone else should read it that way too. Well, we don't want to be that kind of biblicist. We want to be the kind of biblicist that cares about what the Bible says and looks at it as authoritative. And then the final bullet is this odd word, crucicentrism, and that's essentially to say, saying that we're putting the cross, the atoning work of Christ, at the center and at the heart of what we believe the gospel is communicating. So a gospel that denies the atoning work of Christ, we would say is not a gospel. And that's why in our worship services, we want to emphasize Christ's atoning work on the cross. And I think we do that quite well. Um, of course, there's the danger then of forgetting that the Holy Spirit and the Father are actually part of the, you know, redemptive work as well. But crucicentrism, this centrality of the cross, is something that we, we want to hold to as well. And we express this in a variety of ways, in the songs we sing, and even in the icons that we have on our, on our platform using that word kind of tongue-in-cheek, but, but in most churches, evangelical churches, there are crosses that are displayed places, and Christians wear crosses around their necks sometimes, and it's really just born out of this crucicentrism, this focus on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. I want to note that um, an important observation in these primary features are that they're trans-denominational, trans-cultural, and trans-temporal. 
So what I'm trying to say there is that you can be evangelical and not be a Baptist. You can be evangelical and have different cultural expressions of worship. And you can be an evangelical throughout time where culture and time change the way that we relate and interact. So in one way, I want to downplay the expression of things like the clothes that we wear or the type of music that's used and these sorts of things. We'll talk about those as we get into the embodied expression of worship, but we need to note that we have brothers and sisters across the globe who are worshiping the Lord in a genuinely biblical way and in a way that might look radically different than than our service. And because we are in the Twin Cities, we are in a very culturally diverse area. And I think that as our church continues to grow, and Lord willing, we'll see people of different cultural backgrounds joining into our church, our corporate worship is going to take on a culturally diverse flavor. And there are going to be some things that just really hit us where we're at. You know, the, you know for me, it's growing up in, you know, middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, it's the apple pie and, you know, the kind of whatever sort of flavor of things, but, but that's not the case for everybody. And we're, we're called upon to expand our palette for worship. And I think as we do that, we're being imitators of God because God has a wider palette for worship than we do. Um, so as we get into some of these things, keep that in mind. Some of these things are culturally expressed. And in the same way that you wouldn't take a trip to, I don't know, Indonesia and have some kind of food there and complain to the host that they have awful food in Indonesia and they need to change their food, we want to be careful about doing that with worship practices and expression as well. Um, And if we were in rural North Dakota, where I lived for some time, our cultural or our worship practices might look different than they do here. And and we need to continue to flex and grow there, recognizing that it can be genuinely evangelical still. So there's this guy, Michael Bird. He's an Australian guy who I, I enjoy reading his stuff. He summarizes evangelicalism in this way. Evangelicalism, broadly defined, has always been concerned with theological, spiritual, and missional renewal through the gospel. I take it as proven that evangelicalism refers to the constellation of movements where there's a commitment to gospel-centered orthodoxy, a gospel-soaked piety, and gospel-promoting activities. So, so in summary, that's who we are. That's what our commitments are. Another guy named Stanley Grenz has a longer definition here that I think is helpful. To be evangelical means to be centered on the gospel. Consequently, evangelicals are gospel people. They are a people committed to hearing, living out, and sharing the good news of God's saving action in Jesus Christ and the divine gift of the Holy Spirit, a saving action that brings forgiveness, transforms life, and creates a new community. As a gospel people, evangelicals continually set forth the truth that the center of the church is the gospel and that the church, therefore, must be gospel-centered. So that's our drive, and that's my drive here, is to help us think as gospel people and to help us as we continue to shape who we are to become a gospel-centered church. And I know that this language was popular about 10 years ago, this calling everything gospel-centered. 
Well, maybe it got overpopularized, but I think we need to retain it because it's reality, it's truth. So we want to be a gospel-centered church. So if someone comes up to you and asks you, what is your church all about? Well, the answer is the gospel. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. And then we need to be gospelly trained so that we can gospelize others, so that we know the gospel well enough, so that we live and breathe and speak the gospel, which means setting aside um, identification around some other things. Um, I think you all are, are tracking there. So this is what we're striving to become, and that's what I hope this class will help us do. So we could say that the gospel is our most important and most centering doctrine, following not Stanley Grands alone or Michael Bird alone, but the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that this gospel is what is most important. He also went on to say that it was handed to him, delivered. And so we stand in a gospel tradition. And in, in this case, tradition is a good thing. Traditionalism is going to be negative and, and bad, perhaps. We'll talk about that. But we can't escape the fact that the gospel is handed on. And so we stand on the shoulders who have gone before us. So as much as I, I like doing my own thing, okay? That's whether it's teaching, I like just coming up with my own material or working on a project. I just like doing my own thing. Well, as much as we like doing our own thing, we have to recognize our, our church is not our own thing. We're standing on the shoulders of those who went before us, going all the way back to the apostles and Jesus and even Israel and Abraham and, and Adam. So we want to say about the gospel that the gospel is the most important, and it's, at a, it's a message that's passed on, and that's what we want to tie into. And unfortunately, as we trace denominational identities throughout history, denominational identities can start to take precedence over gospel identity. So while I am a, a Baptist and, and committed that way, I want to say that I'm first an evangelical and then a Baptist, and there are parts of Baptist identity, if there is one Baptist identity, that start to take over the gospel in a negative way, and we want to shave some of that off and, and tie ourselves into a more firmly evangelical identity. All right, let me pause there. Any, any questions on that? Okay. All right, let's ask then, what is the gospel? And if you'd like to think about this more, you can take for free one of those little black books in the back called What is the Gospel by a guy named Greg Gilbert. Now, I think that's a good book. I'm glad we're handing it out. Um, but it's not a complete book. So even as you think about that, there, there's another book you might want to pair with it called I think it's called The King Jesus Gospel by a guy named Scott McKnight. That might be helpful as well, but I'll try to encapsulate ideas in both of those books here. I want to begin by expressing my concern that in an effort to preach a simple, clear, unadulterated gospel, many of us in, in many churches have begun to proclaim a truncated gospel that sounds something like this. There's good news and there's bad news. And I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is that you are a sinner on your way to hell. Jesus died and rose again to save you from that terrible destination is the good news. 
So the good news is that if you repent from your sin and believe that Jesus died and rose again, you can be saved from eternal damnation. In fact, you'll be able to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you died tonight, you would go to heaven. All you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart. There's a lot of good there, but it's become so truncated that I, I think that this articulation of the gospel is one that wins someone to the gospel and then gives them the exit door just a few steps down the road. I, I think that this presentation of the gospel is why as we start to look at established churches, kids are going through youth groups and leaving the church and, and not coming back. And we have this whole category of individuals called the de-churched. And, and I, I think that this presentation of the gospel is in part to blame for that. This, this is the gospel that I, that I heard growing up, and I think it's a good start, but it doesn't go far enough. And in fact, it's, it, I, I'm convinced that it actually is the gospel. I'm not convinced that it is the gospel. I think we need to go beyond that to proclaim the gospel. This presentation of the gospel, which is you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and you're going to go to heaven, is has become a canon within the canon. So it's become, this is the core message of the gospel, and I'm not sure that it goes far enough in being the core message of the gospel. It's a judgment call about what the essential gospel preaching is, and it sort of labels it as the bare minimum for Christian belief. And I don't think that that's right, in part because when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's giving the bare minimum for Christian belief, he gives a sentence that, that might start to lean that way, but he gives about 58 more sentences that talk about what happens after heaven. And, and I think this after heaven piece gets missed, and in so doing, it, it puts Christianity on the same plane as Neoplatism, which talks about salvation as deliverance from the body in the earthly world, and that's not going to be helpful. That presentation of going to heaven when you die is certainly reassuring, but it ends with heaven, which is really just a pit stop on our journey to the fullness of redemption. So I've been a footnote there, I think on page six, giving you a, a resource there. If you want to cultivate your Christian imagination in this, if you've been soaked in that message of the gospel, read a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And I, I think that will shape your theological imagination to accept what Paul is trying to argue in 1 Corinthians 15. But I want to read a lengthy quote that's a helpful corrective to this truncated preaching of the gospel. History, this guy Michael Horton writes, has never been short on utopian dreams. Some have tried to bring about an imagined kingdom of God by force, think the Crusades. Other Christians suppose that in the end, the earth will simply be destroyed. The soul will be freed from its bodily prison and enjoy a timeless eternity. But all of these visions of the future are misunderstandings of the hope that is laid out for us in Scripture. Jesus will finally demonstrate his lordship to all people when the dead are raised at the end of the age. Heaven is an unspeakable wonder, but it is not as good as it gets. Let me pause there. We, we need to be able to say that. I think until about three or four years ago, I wasn't saying that, but we need to be able to say that heaven is not as good as it gets. 
That's, that's not the best thing that's going to happen. On resurrection morning, the whole earth will rejoice as it shares with the children of God in the release from bondage to decay, exploitation, bloodshed, and injustice. The whole creation, earth and its Milky Way galaxy, and the, the, all the way to the millions of galaxies that have yet to be discovered, will share in this resurrection life that never ends. Heaven is not the opposite of earth. Okay, let, let that hit you again. Heaven is not the opposite of earth. It is not an airy existence that we are promised, but an earthy society of life in the presence of the triune God. Remember that the risen Christ ate fish and dined with his disciples. That is not an insignificant detail. Whatever is true of his resurrected and glorified body will be true of ours as well. At last, the serpent will be driven out of the temple garden. He will not succeed in seeing the plan for God's garden-filled earth fail. In the end, it is not creation that will be destroyed, but all that threatens it. It is not emotions that pass away, but fear in the sound of mourning. So think here, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. What's going to pass away as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but those who do the will of God will endure forever. When the biblical text talks about the world passing away, it's talking about the world system, not planet Earth. And um, this is a little bit outside of what we have time to deal with, but a lot of these texts that talk about the Earth being destroyed are texts that are in the apocalyptic genre, and it's not talking about the, the physical planet, but the earth system, the world rulers, these sorts of things. This was the natural way of talking about it. And if we're reading the Bible carefully, even if we're not reading the literature of that time, from the very beginning, the sun and moon are talked about in terms of ruling the day and ruling the night. So these planetary celestial you know, figures are become demonstrative of human rulers in a human world system opposed to Christ. That's what's destroyed, not the earth. So think of, of other texts where Paul talks about things like the earth longing for redemption, creation groaning to be restored. And Paul gives us a vision that, that says the earth won't be destroyed, but renewed. It's, it's almost a fourth dimension of the kingdom of God gives a thicker existence to this earth. Well, that's the better on the other side of heaven. Heaven's not the end game. Now, I recognize that it's, it's challenging to give a concise, understandable, helpful description of the gospel. And so that's where I think this truncated articulation of the gospel has come from, out of this challenge that it is. It's also come out of this challenge of putting the gospel in propositional terms. Well, the gospel is not a proposition. It's a story. The, the Bible's a story. Jesus communicated in stories. And when we're trying to accommodate a post-enlightenment way of talking about things in scientific, analytic, propositional terms, we tend to shave off what the actual story is. And, and we'll get into this down the road, but stories... We, we don't get the true essence of the story across by talking about it in propositional terms. We get the true essence of a story across by telling the story. Um, that's why if you've ever watched a movie that you really love or read a book that you really love and someone asks you what it's about, you almost have no other recourse but to say, You're, you just have to read it. That, that's what we say. 
Well, that's what the redemptive story is too. And we need to find ways to shorten it down, but to tell the story in, in giving a proposition A, you're a sinner. Proposition B, you're going to hell. You know, that, that just doesn't do it. That, that's not giving the essence of the story. That's giving a more thin, shadowy version of the story. However, there are some descriptions of the gospel that I think will be helpful as we proceed here. The first is by a guy named John Piper, former pastor of Bethlehem uh, Church here in Minneapolis. He says, the heart of the gospel is the good news that Christ died for sins and was raised from the dead. What makes this good news is that Christ's death accomplished a perfect righteousness before God and suffered a perfect condemnation from God, both of which are counted as ours through faith alone, so that we have eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. I I think that's a good, simple description of the gospel. Yeah, I think it needs to be expanded because it sounds almost like the gospel's new and novel and hasn't been at work from the beginning of time. There's this other guy, N.T. Wright, who's a theologian in the UK who writes this. The gospel is the royal announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures, has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. When this gospel is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. So, so this is expanding a, it a bit further. Let me read another one by a guy named Kevin Van Hooser, who's a, a theologian in Illinois. We believe that the gospel is the good news, that the triune God has poured out his grace in the life death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that through his work we might have peace with God. Jesus lived in perfect obedience, yet suffered everything sinners deserve so that sinners would not have to pursue a righteousness of their own, relying on their own works, but rather through trust in him as the fulfillment of God's promises could be justified by faith alone in order to become fellow heirs with him. Christ died in the place of sinners, absorbing the wages of sin, so that those who entrust themselves to him also die with him to the power, penalty, and eventually practice of sin. Christ was raised, the firstborn of a renewed and restored creation, so that those whom the Spirit unites to him in faith are raised up and created a new humanity in him. Renewed in God's image, they are thereby enabled to live out his life in them one with Christ and made alive in him who is the only ground of salvation, sinners are reconciled with God, justified, adopted, sanctified, and eventually glorified children of the promise. Now that I think is a full, thick description of the gospel. Let me give you one more by Michael Bird. The gospel is the announcement that God's kingdom has come in the life death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord and Messiah in fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. The gospel evokes for faith, repentance, and discipleship, or evokes faith, repentance, and discipleship. Its accompanying effects include salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a more full and thick gospel that connects the gospel from from God's original creation purposes all the way to the end. And this has extreme impact on our, our corporate worship if we're thinking of the gospel in those terms versus the gospel in escape from hell and the best thing is going to be a disembodied state in heaven. 
well, we're, we're on earth in the body and we're going to do something called worship that has continuity with the ages past and the age to come. And a tiny truncated gospel isn't going to facilitate that. Obviously, we don't have time to keep going in this packet. So hang on to this packet because there's more to say about the gospel and embodiment. But I at least want us to say our worship needs to be gospel-driven, gospel-centered, and with the kind of gospel that transcends this kind of shadowy existence floating on a cloud, uh, but, but that is more thick and full and has implications for our worship now as embodied individuals.